This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Governor and Governor-elect, hello, how are you? Good. Ryan, how are you? Nice to to see see you. you. We take you to the state capitol today where there's about to be an important transfer of power. Governor John Hickenlooper is at the end of his term, and Governor-elect Jared Polis will soon be sworn in. We spoke with them about the responsibility that comes with one-party rule. Democrats basically took over state government in the midterms. We'll also discuss the big issues left unresolved after the election, money for transportation and schools, and tensions around fracking. First, though, something a bit more personal. I wonder, Governor-elect Polis, if we could start with a sense of what you're most interested in hearing from Governor Hickenlooper (laughs) about the office you'll hold come January. Like, what are you most eager to know? You know, gosh, there's so many great discussions that Governor Hickenlooper and I have had both during the campaign and after the election. I think it was the very next day I came down and we we got to chat uh, for a while. You know, what was kind of the biggest surprise to you? John, when when you were elected, and what do you wish that you knew eight years ago that you know now? (laughs) Um, Part of it is just process. So I had never been in a legislative environment. Both the city council and the mayor's office of Denver are nonpartisan. So here it was partisan, and the General Assembly has a very different dynamic. And it took me a while to pick that up. Uh, And I started to give Governor-elect Polis advice along that. And I realized that he had about 10 years of experience already. Right. Having served in Congress, he could probably school you in this. You know what's good is Colorado functions a lot better than Washington does. Under John, as well as prior governors, we just have more of a tradition of working together. Some of it is structural, the way we have the Joint Budget Committee uh, work with the governor's office, but also just more of a tradition of working across the aisle. Unfortunately, in Washington, Partisan politics on both sides has become more toxic than ever before. And I think uh, we can learn about what not to do by some of the partisanship in in Washington. Do you think that's because Colorado has had a history of divided government, though, Governor-elect Polis? In other words, we're we're going into a trifecta where the governor is a Democrat, where the state House and the state Senate are run by Democrats. Well, it's really a historic opportunity that the voters have given to Democrats, to me, to produce. Uh, It's only as good as if we can live up to what uh, we said we would work on for voters. Can we save families money on health care? Can we expand kindergarten to be full day for every child in the state? I'm optimistic. I think we can. We're ready to take on that challenge and work with Republicans on reaching those priorities. But ultimately, uh, voters will hold us accountable. Is there a a legacy of your administration, a policy perhaps, Governor Hickenlooper, that you most hope Governor-elect Polis will preserve or advance further. My greatest hope is that the state maintains its momentum for innovation. And I think that a lot of the success for the economy and jobs has been around innovation, a lot of our educational successes, and even healthcare. We've been around innovation, and I think one of the things that Governor-elect Polis has demonstrated again and again throughout his life is he's not afraid of innovation and new ideas. And my guess is that, you know, our innovation, our rate of innovation will continue apace. The midterm election in Colorado saw a pretty clear rejection of the Republican Party. One Denver pollster says in the past 20 years, never has one political party been so overwhelmingly rejected at every level of government by the electorate. And while Democratic candidates fared well, traditionally Democratic priorities did not. A tax increase for education failed. So did a tax hike for roads. 
Uh, and of course, fundamental tensions over fracking remain unaddressed. So I thought we might zoom in on these issues with the next administration a bit, perhaps with transportation governor-elect Polis, two measures to increase spending actually failed. What's the next step? Well, I was uh, relieved that one of them in particular failed, and that was 109. That would have gotten in the way of our plans to um, make kindergarten full day, herd education funding. That was putting the state in debt without new revenue, and the state taxpayers would be liable for the interest payments. The other one, which was largely backed, I would add, by the chamber. So these are not Democrats. These are mostly Republicans that put the tax increase forward. It did not pass either. That was a sales tax. So from my perspective, uh, voters have spoken, and we are ruling out two things with regard to transportation funding. One is bonding without new revenue, and the second is we're ruling out sales tax because the voters have said that they don't want those two. Everything else is within the realm of the possible. Period. The voters have spoken very clearly Mm -hmm. that they don't want to pay for roads with the sales tax, and they've spoken very clearly that they don't want to borrow without any new revenue to pay for roads. What would your top idea be as an alternative? So there's all kinds of ideas. You could raise the gas tax. There's vehicle miles traveled where you actually charge people for how much they drive. Which one is most? Well, here we are a week later. So again, you're in the realm of the possibles, everything except for the two things that the voters said they didn't want to do. And what that means is we need to really lead a discussion with Republicans and Democrats, the Western Slope, the Front Range, the business community, uh, to figure out the best path forward to make sure that we can build out the infrastructure, not only for where we are today, uh, but for where Colorado expects to be in 10 years and 20 years. Do you think this would be addressed in the coming session? Uh, Well, I think uh, ultimately, of course, 109 and 110 didn't pass. I've said it is appropriate to use general fund money uh, where we have it for roads, but you'll never be able to find money in a particular year to meet those needs. It's really a question of how we meet the unfunded need in our roads. And it's a broader discussion than just the legislature. Do you apply the same logic to the school funding measure? That is, voters rejected a statewide tax increase. Does that mean that approach is dead on arrival to you in terms of boosting K-12 spending in particular? Well, voters rejected Amendment 73. So uh, obviously, we you know, would not tr- support trying anything like that again. So uh, again, I think in structuring it, you, it's easier to get to 50% in this state than 55. If you're amending the state constitution, you have to get the 55% threshold. So your idea would be to do something statutorily. It's much more likely to pass. Uh, How in, soon do you uh, think than, that could happen? You know, again, you're, you're talking outside of the uh, legislative session. Um, we're focused on this historic opportunity to save people money on health care, establish free full-day kindergarten for every kid, uh, and keep our economy growing in this session. Uh, And then, of course, after the next six or seven months, we're happy to continue the discussion. So you've heard there Governor-elect Polis's ideas for the session ahead. I want to ask one more that went unaddressed because of the election, and that is the tension around oil and gas. To what extent do you think the conversation will take place in the legislature around that. There's lots of legislators that are uh, whose constituents are very eager for them to address uh, oil and gas issues. Uh, a 2,500 foot setback in all cases did not pass. That's never what I thought the solution was. I think the solution is to really figure out the parameters around uh, local input of neighborhoods and cities and counties into decisions that affect the quality of life in different areas of our state. Governor Hickenlooper, I'm hearing a little bit of a contrast here between your administration and perhaps the next, which is perhaps coming into session with a very clear agenda, even a bully pulpit, and saying, this is what I want out of this session. Historically, I feel like you have uh, perhaps been a bit more deferential to the the legislature. Do you think that's true? uh, You've been reporting all these years 
the General Assembly will come in and the Joint Budget Committee will opine on what they think the final parts of the budget were. We always laid out a strong budget. Oftentimes it was changed, right? Uh, we would have a higher reserve now. We would have more money in education. There are a number of different things that would have happened had we had more control. I suspect, again, Congressman Polis, uh, Governor-elect Polis, has a lot more experience than I have in terms or than I had in terms of dealing in legislative situations. So maybe he's going to pull uh, a couple rabbits out of his hat. But the structure in this building is slanted against the governor. I mean, there's no I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it is it means you've got to work very closely with the General Assembly to get things done. And my suspicion is, just from what I've heard, part of the campaign with Governor-elect Polis was that he met with a number of the, of the legislators during the campaign, and he talked about all-day kindergarten and, and how do we think about that and, you know, do you think there's ways to find the financing for that? My guess, we'll let him speak for himself, but I think he's halfway down the road in terms of those discussions. Yeah, and I think we'll get there. And I think part of our argument with legislators is, um, is that, look, uh, I wasn't elected for no reason. I was elected, and Democrats in general were elected, with a mandate, a very specific mandate. Uh, Full-day kindergarten is part of that. Saving money on health care is part of that. And many legislators had overlapping areas that they campaigned on. Um, I uh, I don't think there was a, a, a single legislator that campaigned on increasing health care costs or not having kindergarten. So They didn't fare uh, well if they did. If they didn't fare well <laughs> if they did. So, uh, you know, I think you find – you're not going to find 100 percent overlap, but I think what you have is very strong overlap with what legislators want to do and want to produce for their constituents. And we're trying to find that alignment and really work in that aligned area to accomplish these goals. Let's go back to that time when Democrats were in control uh, before – and were accused of overreach. Uh, passage of new gun restrictions led to the recall of two Democratic lawmakers. On election night, as the results were coming in, uh, we spoke with state GOP chairman Jeff Hayes, who had a colorful warning for Democrats. There's a phrase, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. His version of overreach. Well, wait, is he, is he portraying himself as a pig or, or as a hog? I think he's perhaps portraying himself as the slaughterer, but oh, in, in any case... Okay, just checking. Uh, speak to this idea of your ro- role with the minority party in the coming session, that idea of the m- mandate on one side that you talk about, but also the, the purplishness that Colorado has truly seen. Well, I immediately called uh, Republican legislative leadership uh, right after they were selected. I got to uh, speak to most members of their uh, leadership team. Just today, left messages with the House and Senate minority leaders, and I look forward to meeting with their caucus as well. On most of these areas that we want to accomplish, um, we expect that the main challenges won't necessarily be ideological, but will be taking on the special interests. And we'd love Republican help to do that, to reduce health care costs. There's been a longtime champions of full-day kindergarten in the state legislature on the Republican side of the aisle, uh, Representative Jim Wilson of Salida. Uh, so I think we have uh, really big opportunities to do this. And, you know, again, Again, uh, Republicans will have to choose to cooperate where they can and where our goals overlap, and we expect them to be the party of opposition where uh, we're trying to accomplish things that they don't feel are the correct things for their constituents. So you think that the special interests might be the dividing line, but might the, the price tag of some of this stuff also be where there are divisions, how you pay for this, and perhaps even the size and the role of government? Well, again, I think that there'll be principal disagreements between Democrats and Republicans, but I would hope that uh, Republicans are at the table around a lot of our ideas to reduce health care costs, whether it's expanding scope of care or negotiating 
better prices for prescription drugs. Uh, None of these are inherently uh, liberal or conservative things. And one of the things that I convey to Republican leadership and will convey to Republicans across the state and independents is we want ideas from all over the political spectrum. I mean, the, the left or the right doesn't have a monopoly on good ideas. And it's really a time where we might have the opportunity to turn some of those ideas into, into policy. I have heard pundits say that with you, Governor Hickenlooper, this is the end of a moderate streak in Colorado. And that in, in Jared Polis, Coloradans have elected uh, a more liberal governor. I wonder what you two make of that. Is, is this a sea change in some regards, in your view? But, you know, pundits make up whatever they want to say. I think we'll both be judged by our records. John's been an amazing governor for the state. He leaves a strong economy as his greatest legacy. And, of course, uh, we're looking forward to continuing that work to make the economy work for everybody. You know, when people half the people, you know, call, call both of us too liberal or too conservative. I mean, it just depends who you're talking to. I don't see him as coming in as a, as a wild liberal. And, and I don't feel I'm so moderate, right? I think, I think those words don't mean as much as they used to. Yeah, I, I don't really view that as the fundamental divide. I think it's many ways forwards versus backwards, right? Forwards towards covering more people and reducing costs on health care. Forwards towards full-day kindergarten instead of backwards to four-day weeks for many school districts. Our conversation with Colorado's Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper and the Democrat he's passing the baton to, Jared Polis. One of the big stories in recent days, Amazon choosing the location for its second headquarters to be split between two cities, Long Island City, New York, and Arlington, Virginia. Shocking. Very. I just, I was shocked to Uh hear that information. Uh, Denver, of course, had been named as a finalist. Uh, The entire process with cities and regions falling over each other to lure HQ2 came under some harsh criticism. Before the decision was announced, uh, the urbanist Richard Florida was quoted as saying, Amazon's very public search was really about creating a large-scale, crowdsourced, corporate locational strategy. In other words, Amazon leveraged the $5 billion corporate headquarters and the 50,000 high-paying jobs to get cities to hand over comprehensive data about potential locations for the future. Governor Hickenlooper, did Amazon play Metro Denver? I don't know. I mean, I think what their intention was, was to provide an incentive to get every, all these cities all across this country and and across Canada to put everything they had on the table. And that's in their self-interest. I do think it's interesting to look at Metro Denver. All the municipalities in Metro Denver made an agreement way back in uh, I believe it was finally done in 2000, end of 2003, beginning of 2004, where we don't offer incentives to businesses. If, if Aurora has a business, they're thinking they might move. Denver will not give them an incentive. No poaching within the metro. No but poaching. We're I, the I only fundamental question. Were the only? Were we we're, no way. Would you let me finish my <laughs> sentence? You, know, you only have to put up with me for another month and a half. So <laughs> unless you run for president, yeah, then you'll really be stuck with me. Um, I think that the what, what I was talking about was the fact that there's no other metropolitan area in the country that has an, a no poaching agreement, and that maybe we should be looking around the country as why. Why isn't there more metro areas, and, and why isn't this done on a more systemic level? Because, you know, this, it, it, it obviously, I think what Richard Florida was getting at, it's not a good idea for the whole country, for municipalities to give gifts to, to I mean, we all do it. Colorado's are, our incentives for job creation are among the smallest in the United States. I think what I hear you saying is that there's this agreement of no poaching within the metro area. There ought to be such an agreement within the country. Well, there should be contemplated and discussed, Yes. Were we played? 
No, I did don't we think play so. our hand? No, we 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 used the incentives we have, which we recognized were a fraction of what places like New York or Texas would offer. Uh, but we gave up a lot of information about this market. Well, that's a two-edged sword. So we collected a bunch of information and gave it to them. But in the process of collecting that information, we brought together a bunch of landlords and property owners of developable sites. And we learned a lot. You know, what are our best opportunities? How should we be talking about our community, even to the businesses that are already here and looking for a larger a larger headquarters, or VF Corporation, when they were trying to decide whether they were going to move to Colorado, and they are now going to... This uh, is the brand uh, <clears throat> that has North Face, yeah. uh, a lot of outdoor brands. Smart Wool, you, know, you go down the list, Jansport, that's a $35 billion company that's going to move their global headquarters to Denver. And part of the attraction process was that we had all that information ready to go. So, I, I mean, we did give it to Amazon. And if we'd gotten Amazon, we could have disbanded all our economic development offices for at least five years, right? (laughs) Maybe 10 years. Governor Akpolis, are you relieved Denver wasn't chosen? (laughs) Is there some part of you that's relieved? Well, uh, look, um, I think that the the way that Governor Hickenlooper spoke out against what I would call corporate welfare is something I completely agree with, this runaway giveaways to corporations at the expense of taxpayers. I know that many fiscal conservatives and Republicans also agree uh, with what he said and what, what I feel about that. So I think we've got to stop handing out taxpayer money to big corporations with lobbyists, and we should uh, not take it from taxpayers in the first place if we're just going to give it out to special interests. So again, should, there, should there be even fewer incentives? Uh, yeah, absolutely. We look at getting rid of as many uh, tax credits and tax expenditures as we can to reduce uh, the tax rate in Colorado. It's not going to be all of them, but you know, as many as we can. Film incentives? You're talking nickels and dimes there. There's some big-ticket items uh, that are going to be hard discussions where we hope that we can save the taxpayers' money by reducing corporate welfare. Are you relieved about Amazon? Uh, no, no, look, I'm excited for all the challenges that the governorship entails. If uh, figuring out how to integrate Amazon into successfully in our community was one of them, I'd be up for it. Uh, <laughs> and it's not, so I don't have to worry about that. I have a hundred other things to worry about. <laughs> we were ready to wrap up the interview there when Governor-elect Paulus had a final question for Governor Hickenlooper. John, do you have any advice on the personal front about how to successfully be a great governor and, you know, make sure you're a great father as well and, and, and husband? And how do you make sure that that side comes along and and it isn't a sacrifice. I guess at some point you have to sit down with your scheduler who can, you know, be a hard, hard boss in a funny way. And you know this from the campaign you've just been through, but you just got to carve off certain amounts of time and and always looking for opportunities to take your kids, take the whole family. You know, Marlon's, you're going to have opportunities to experience things as a family that are really unusual. You're going to get a chance to meet people you know, at parades, some in, in like the Brush Fourth of July parade, a couple thousand people in a town that is only two thousand people that live there. It's amazing. Five Points still does uh, the Juneteenth parade. These things are are a, a kick, not just for yourself, but for your whole family. You know, the one thing you'll have to figure out, and, and I'm sure you've got your ground rules already, but we certainly for Teddy up until he was about fourteen, we never let. And the media in Denver has been amazing. But if you ask for them not to put pictures in the paper and stuff like that, they've been very reasonable. And that's you know something you guys have to work out on your own. I'm curious if the first man, Marlon, if he um, plans to have a very public role, which has sometimes been true of previous first ladies, and what issue he might 
gravitate towards if so? You know, I think like under John Hickenlooper, you know, um, Robin and Helen have not had a huge public profile, which is their choice. And that's just who they are. And I think Marlon is actually very similar that way. He's passionate about certainly some issues and animal welfare is one that he cares uh, near and dear about. He's a vegan. Uh, We have a nine-year-old terrier rescue, uh, and it's certainly talked about a lot in in our home. But yeah, you know, he, we have two great kids and, and, you know, a very great family life, you know, outside of, I don't think he'll be, you know, having his main identity as the, as the first gentleman. Governor, Governor-elect, thanks for your time. You bet. Thank you. Democrats John Hickenlooper and Jared Polis recorded Thursday afternoon. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. They said, go, go see Dr. Dahl. I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio, for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis. He'd walk down the street to Nikolai Dahl's house, lie back in a deep, comfortable armchair, and Dahl would speak to him in his soft, hypnotic voice. You will begin to write your concerto. You will work with great facility. The concerto will be of an excellent quality. Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning. It starts in this still, dark C minor. And very quickly, it turns to a warm, comforting E major. For CPR's great composers wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado is not the Deep South, but there were lynchings here, like that of a 16-year-old African-American boy on this day in 1900. People came from all over to watch the gruesome murder of Preston Porter Jr., More than a century later, people will gather for a different reason, to honor him by collecting soil from the spot where he died. Westward writer Alan Prendergast looked into Porter's lynching, the broader history, and the effort to make sure that it is not forgotten. Alan, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Let's talk about the significance behind collecting soil. Well, this really started with the Equal Justice Initiative, this museum that opened in Montgomery, Alabama earlier this year. Uh, they went out, sent out a call to various community groups to go find unmarked lynching sites and to collect soil, which is really about the only physical link we have to these events. I mean, they, they were, you know, covered up at the time and there really is no other evidence of them. Um, so the idea is to collect the soil and each soil display at this museum uh, represents a different lynching and there's individual information about the victim in each case. Um, So some people here started looking into those three Colorado lynchings and particularly the racially motivated ones, which there were more surprisingly more than people I think realize. 
Um, and they decided to start with Preston Porter Jr. because this was such an astonishing event. I, I lived here most of my life. I had never heard of this case where uh, so this this teenager was marched out into a field where this murder had happened. He was blamed for this girl's murder and was literally burned to death at the stake uh, before a crowd of about 300 people, some of whom had come from Denver, Colorado Springs. Uh, the media was well aware of this. They were in full regalia and in, out there with illustrators and photographers to capture this. Um, there was, you know, a call to the governor's office about what they were going to do anything about this. They completely stayed out of it. Mm-hmm. The local sheriff uh, was overpowered and this was taken out in the field and, and this happened. Place this for us. So this is near Lyman, Colorado, correct? This is right outside Lyman. Uh, the girl who was killed was the daughter of a prominent rancher in Lyman. Lyman is a was a hub city for the train lines. And Preston Porter Jr. lived with his father and his older brother, and they worked for the railroad. And shortly after this girl was killed, there was an attempt to, you know, really a manhunt that went on. And they settled on this family, partly because they seemed suspicious. They had just left Lyman and gone to Denver. They were arrested, interrogated. Uh, Preston eventually confessed under very coercive circumstances. And he may or may not have done it. I mean, I don't know that we'll ever know that. The point is he never got a trial. There was never any chance to really challenge the circumstantial evidence against him. This was an extrajudicial killing. Yes. And we had more of those than, than people think. I mean, that was partly why I wanted to get into this was was to see how this fit in with the rest of the time. And it, it's surprising to me the kind of place Colorado was uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, even well into the Wilson administration, there were still lynchings taking place. You have alluded to the gruesome nature of the killing. Um, with a word to those listening that, that this could get even more descriptive, I would like you to have um, listeners understand exactly what happened. Could, well, um, he so he's arrested in Denver. Uh, there is a great deal of speculation in the papers that if he's brought back to Lyman, he will be killed, that he'll never make it to the jail in Hugo that the sheriff wants to take him to. Despite these warnings, uh, eventually it's understood that this is going to happen and it's inevitable. And the sheriff sneaks him onto a train. But of course, everybody already knows that he's on his way to Lyman. Uh, people from the local vigilance committee in Lyman take him off the train. I mean, there's actually a group of people who met and decided how they were going to do this lynching. And it was led by the girl's father, uh, who essentially is the one who ends up striking the match. They take him out to a field where the girl had died. He, there's a ra- there's an iron rail that's driven into the ground. He's tied to that. A bunch of wood is brought by wagon from town and heaped around him with kerosene and he's set on fire. And this goes on for several minutes uh, with the crowd jeering and taunting as he is dying. And uh, it, they continue to stoke the fire afterwards until there's nothing left really but bones. Say just a few words about this remembrance. This is an attempt by uh, a number of social activists who have gotten together under the blessing of the Equal Justice Initiative to go out there um, and and sort of commemorate this event, uh, not not in a way that, that <laughs> I mean, it's, it's ironic. Initially, the people who did the lynching wanted that rail to set up, left there as a kind of memorial, as a deterrent, as a message to, you know, I mean, basically as a form of racial terror, basically, as an, an intimidating factor. Mm. What these people are trying to do is a memorial 
to the loss that this represents and to try to understand better this sort of history and I guess get a dialogue going really about race and justice. Rosemary Lytle is the Colorado, Montana, and Wyoming president of the NAACP, and uh, she was in your story, and she shared a few words with us about the remembrance in Lyman this weekend. This is a public commemoration designed to remember a lynching, something that maybe we never thought we'd want to remember, but we must. Let's... Uh, paint the broader picture here. You found at least 175 people were executed without a trial in Colorado. What was the thinking? Who was targeted predominantly? Well, this is over a period of 60 years. There's actually Steve Leonard, the uh, Metro professor, is the one who did that tally. But uh, basically, uh, initially, you're talking about horse thieves and people like that, right? I mean, what we think about is sort of frontier justice. But as there's more of a real judicial system in Colorado, it becomes more and more a way of going after people who, for whatever reason, the crime is considered such a public outrage or the particular group that is being targeted. There's there's another agenda here about sending a message. Uh, so, so you have, uh, I, you know, it's, it's it's hard to categorize one group or another. There were there were at least three African Americans among those lynchings, where it was clear that race was a factor. But it was also race was also a factor in a number of targeted Hispanics, a mm-hmm. number of Native Americans. There's at least one lynching of uh, a Chinese immigrant at a time when there was a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment in Denver. Um, so, you know, immigrants, Hispanics, African Americans, they all show up pretty prominently. In these lynchings, I wonder if you did what uh, we journalists call a clip search, so to look for headlines, what might have been written about these instances at the time. How how well covered was this? Well, that the was media? the amazing thing about yeah. the Porter case. I mean, some of the lynchings that the information is sketchy, uh-huh. but with the Porter case, you had this eight day buildup between the time the girl was murdered and the time Porter is lynched, where the press was really all over this and. The the headlines were incredibly inflammatory, and I mean, they, there was a presumption of guilt here that's just terrible uh, from the standpoint that uh, there, there was no question really that this was the kid and, and that, that he deserved to do, you know, that they, that they were going to do this to him, basically. Mark Twain even wrote about this? Mark Twain wrote an essay a few months after this murder. He didn't refer specifically to Preston Porter, but he did reference Colorado. And he was talking about the resurgence of lynchings around the country, including Colorado and his home state of Missouri. And he said, what's going to happen next? Are we going to have, have something like this in the middle of New York with police standing by? I mean, he was, what he was talking about was clearly influenced by what he read about Porter. And you've alluded to this, but leaders at the time in Colorado really stayed mum. Well, it's interesting. The governor at the time was a veteran of the Confederacy. And really had no sympathy at all for or any, any empathy for this for this uh, victim of this lynching. Is that Governor Thomas? Yes, Thomas. A few years after that, I should add, though, uh, the, there was a Governor Shafroth who came in, uh, John Shafroth, who actually prevented a lynching and shows, I guess, that, that this governor could have done something if he wanted to. I mean, Shafroth threatened to bring out the National Guard and stopped a lynching in La Junta. Are there more questions you have about this history? Oh, sure. There's lots that we'd like to know more about Preston Porter's background. It seems that there's at least one case that I found, well, a librarian found for me, where he seems to have been judged mentally feeble uh, in Kansas in an earlier 
court, uh, court proceeding, which makes me think that maybe that makes the confession even more bogus, that he could have well been coerced into a confession. Uh, there's a lot to, that we don't know. We wondered how racial injustice resonates today, uh, how this is really for some more than just symbol. And here again is Rosemary Lytle of the NAACP in the region. It looks like the disproportionate incarceration of young men of color. It looks like the achievement gap in education. It looks like every sad story that you see now of someone typically white who calls the police on someone typically black for doing what? Walking, standing. That's what it looks like now. Rosemary Lytle of the NAACP in the region, who will take part in a ceremony in Lyman tomorrow to remember a 16-year-old lynching victim, Preston Porter Jr. He died 118 years ago today. Alan Prendergast wrote about this for Westward. Alan, thank you. Thank you, Ryan. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What would a Buffs game be without CU's mascot, Ralphie? In case you're unfamiliar, Ralphie isn't some college kid in a sweat-soaked buffalo suit. Ralphie is an actual bison. She runs on the field before every football game, accompanied by highly trained students known as Ralphie Runners. Tomorrow, the 500th game will be played at Folsom Stadium, and uh, we thought this was a great opportunity to meet one of these runners. Dylan Bernstein is a senior at CU. Hi, Dylan. Hey. <laughs> Why did you want to become a Ralphie runner? I've always wanted to be uh, on the team. Both my parents uh, went to CU, and I also have two older sisters uh, that also went to CU. So I've been going to Buffs games all my life, and I was probably in first or second grade when I was at my first game, and I just remember uh, just getting in my seats and then all of a sudden just kind of looking up and <laughs> there's just a, a buffalo just running across the field. And uh, I was kind of shocked at first and then I just kind of looked around at everyone around me and everyone was just cheering so loud and that was just uh, really just an eye-opening experience and then always kind of wanted to go to CU and kept it in the back of my mind that, you know, if I ever went there, I'd hopefully be on the Ralphie Handler team. Okay, you said you had always wanted to be on the team, to be very clear, not the football team, the runner team. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you tried out, I think, in the spring of your freshman year. Yep. So yep. Pr- pretty soon after arriving at CU. Talk about the rigor of the tryout. Yeah, I, it's definitely a pretty rigorous process. Uh, there's first an application uh, that, you know, becomes live, I think, on January 1st. And then after that, there's like an actual physical in-person tryout uh, at the stadium, on the field. Uh, and it's basically just sprints against the current handlers, uh, 100-yard sprints for time. And then uh, if you do well in those uh, sprints, usually in about the top 15 of those times, then you'll get an interview after that. And the interview process is really intimidating. Uh, there's a lot of people just grilling you. Um, what kind of questions are they asking? Just all sorts of questions. I mean, you know, they asked me if I had any experience working with large animals before. and Had you? No, no, no. Uh, I'm just, you know, raised in the suburbs, so no. <laughs> um, Maybe a dog or a cat. Exactly, or yeah. Okay. I said it, I think I said it, uh, I had a dog. So, um, yeah, but then just, you know, other questions, just you know, trying to just see, you know, if you're a good ambassador for the school. What exactly is a Ralphie runner? Can you help us understand the job? 
Yeah. So as as a you know Ralphie Handler, we um, dedicate about twenty to thirty hours a week um, to you know caring for Ralphie, but then also to training um, and practicing to actually be able to run uh, with Ralphie. Run with Ralphie, as yeah. opposed to <laughs> having Ralphie run roughshod over you, which is a real risk. I have to think. I mean, joking aside. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely risk involved um, with every run. But, uh, you know, our program director, John, really trains us for, you know, any situation. So I think we all feel very prepared every time we go out there. Prepares you for any situation. Give me an example of a situation you get prepared for with Ralphie. I mean, you know, what we're really doing on every run is just kind of reading, um, you know, her speed, um, you know, how deep she wants to go. I mean, it's really up to her, you know, if she wants to you know, go 70 yards and then turn if she wants to go 60 yards and turn. So we're really just, you know, in practice, really just trying to read her. Um, and anticipate moves. A, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. There have been five Ralphies, I think, in CU's history. Yep. And they're always female because of their smaller size. Yeah. It, yeah. It's mainly due to size. A male buffalo would be about a thousand pounds heavier and uh-huh. about a foot taller. So, yeah. Does she ever get nervous before charging the field? I think she definitely, I mean, you can definitely tell she gets really excited um, on game days. You can tell she's she's really ready to run. Um, so, yeah, I mean, she definitely can hear the crowd noise uh, on game days. You can really tell that, you know, her speed is uh, a little faster. So it's, uh, oh, it's almost Pavlovian. Like she hears the crowd and knows what's coming. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Okay. Yep. I think there will be some listening to this who, who think this is cruel. Uh, this is not kind to the animal. Talk about the care that Ralphie gets, because I, right. I know that's part of your job. You've mentioned that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, we're with Ralphie uh, basically every single day. And uh, our program director, John, has been working with Buffalo, I think, you know, for about 20 years. Uh, so, you know, he's really experienced in that field. She has her own personal veterinarians that are always with her. Um, and like I said, we're down there almost every day taking care of her, making sure she has everything she needs. Um, and she actually has a companion buffalo down, uh, you know, at her ranch. She has multiple pastures to graze in. We do, you know, rotational um, pasture grazing. So she always has fresh, um, you know, things to graze on. So it's really, you know, the best life that a buffalo could ask for. The ranch where she lives is kept a secret, I understand. Yeah. I I think for obvious reasons. Yeah, definitely for her safety. Yep. Mascots have been known to be stolen, (laughs) for instance. Okay, we are inevitably going to get the letters from people castigating me for not making the differentiation between a bison or a buffalo. Right. Bison, of course, the traditional uh, Western animal. This is a bison, right? Correct. Yep. She is a bison, but she is under the classification of American buffalo. Okay. (laughs) What's your favorite Ralphie story? Ah, man. Um... Probably my first run. I mean, just personally, that's my favorite story. Yeah. Um, definitely my first run. I mean, just being super nervous. Uh, it was the homecoming game. Um, and so the stadium was like the fullest I've ever seen it. Uh, so I was extremely nervous. Um, and then to be honest, I, the whole run was just kind of a blur. I just had so much adrenaline going. Um, and then kind of just right after just, you know, being with all my teammates and then, you know, just kind of hugging each other because uh, it's really a, an amazing experience that is just really hard to describe how exhilarating it is. I'm trying to picture what it looks like after the run. How do you calm Ralphie back down and and get her rehandled? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we you know, finish up where she's just running right into her trailer. Um, <gasps> so she goes, yeah, she goes right in there. Yeah, yep. 
um, and she's really good at stopping right in there. So, uh, and she usually just turn around and then, you know, she's good to go. And then all the handlers usually, you know, celebrate a little bit, um, you know, if, you know, that we're glad that everything went well. So, yep. What does Ralphie eat? She's grass hay about 20, 25 pounds a day. I just know that part of your job is what comes out on the other end. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's definitely part of going down there and, uh, you know, just cleaning up. <laughs> Is it everything that you'd hoped for? In other words, I wonder if you look back to your young self there at Folsom, hearkening back to how exciting the whole situation was, uh, and think you've come full circle. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely uh, everything I thought it was and, and even more. Um, you know, just being able to be an ambassador for CU, I think, is uh, you know, been, it's been a great experience. And then I just uh, don't really know how many people can say that they've you know, <laughs> you know run with the Buffalo before. Um, Are you about to graduate? Yeah, yeah, in May. Yep. Are you going to miss Ralphie? Oh, absolutely. Yep, I definitely will. Do old handlers come back to visit her? All the time. Okay. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, you definitely build a bond with her, and uh, I look forward to coming back and seeing her. It's very nice to meet you, Dylan. Thanks so much. I appreciate you for having me on. Dylan Bernstein is a Ralphie runner at CU Boulder. I'll note the 500th game is scheduled at Folsom Field tomorrow against Utah. Later today, we'll have a slideshow of Ralphie and of the stadium throughout the years. Well, it's early yet, but the Denver Nuggets are already on pace to shatter last year's home attendance numbers. Not bad for a team that has ranked near the bottom of the NBA in terms of attendance in recent years. CPR's Vic Vela reports on why Denver sports fans are finally starting to take notice of a long-overlooked franchise. People moved to Colorado for a lot of reasons. The mountains, the economy, you name it. But Brendan Vogt came here about a year ago for a rather novel reason. Yeah, I am probably the only human being uh, in the history of human beings to move to Denver because of the Nuggets, because of the basketball team that can't get anyone to come to their games, that can't make it to the finals. That's why I'm here, Vic. Vogt moved here to write for Denver Stiffs and All Things Nuggets website. But he didn't realize until he moved here how little interest he'd find in Denver's NBA team. So when I moved here, I was hoping to meet a bunch of people who were passionate about the Nuggets, and I couldn't find them anywhere. I couldn't find a Nuggets bar. I couldn't find Nuggets jerseys. Honestly, the biggest crowds I saw were because of the opposing fan bases. I talked to Vote at a Denver Stiffs Nuggets watch party at the Celtic Tavern downtown. It was a Wednesday night, and a couple of dozen people had come out to cheer for the team, including Robin Arnold. I tried to get a sense from him of the Nuggets' popularity in this town. What do people think of when they think of Denver? Uh, weed. <laughs> but, but no, from a sports perspective, definitely the Broncos and maybe the Avs since they've won a couple Stanley Cups. But it's never the Nuggets. But no, it's not the Nuggets. But maybe this is our year. Get it to Jokic. And Jokic puts it away. The reason fans think this could be the year the Nuggets take over the city is they're playing really well. Denver got off to its best start in 42 years, going 9-1. and They've come down to earth a bit since then, having hit a recent losing streak. But there's still a newfound buzz around this team. And it's being noticed by the players themselves, like Nuggets forward Paul Millsap. Yeah, you can feel it and hear it, man. You know, it's, it's a big difference. You know, I, I think the, the spirit of, of basketball in this town has really um, evolved. And um, it's up to us to get out there and continue to perform for them. And the excitement around this team is showing up at the cash register. The Nuggets unveiled flashy new uniforms and logos this year, and fans are just eating them up. 
Derek Friedman owns SportsFan, a sports merchandise retailer. It is a recognizable increase. I wouldn't say things are flying off the shelves, but certainly there are a lot more people coming in and looking for everything nuggets from t-shirts and hoodies and decals to put on their cars, all those kinds of things. People are really excited about it. Now, the Nuggets have had some really good teams in the past, but those seasons often ended in disappointment. Scott Hastings provides color commentary for Nuggets games on Altitude Sports. They've had moments. uh, I, I think the key in sports, obviously, is to be able to sustain those moments, which the Broncos have been able to do. And, and probably why this town is, is you know, Bronco-heavy for the most part. The Broncos have won three Super Bowls, the Avs have won two Stanley Cups, and the Rockies have made it to a World Series. The Nuggets, well, they've never won a championship. And in fact, they've never even been to the NBA Finals. And it's been almost six years since they made the playoffs. But nowadays, Denver is led by rising stars like Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, and Gary Harris, who the Nuggets feel are going to be the team's core for years to come. And he's off the mark there, and a good box out by Jokic. Long lead, Harris, and a Euro step, you betcha, and he lays it in. And the NBA's popularity is on the rise. TV ratings are up for these games, while fewer people are watching the NFL. And Scott Hastings thinks these young Nuggets have a chance to make a name for themselves in Denver, especially as the Broncos struggle. Broncos, and listen, if they continue their slide this year, they'll fight for crowds in December. Uh, and it's a great opportunity, to be honest with you, with, for the Denver Nuggets to, to continue to play well. And then, you know, I, I think there's a good sports community that are, are always looking to fill that void. Nuggets players like Mason Plumley say this team is doing its best to win over hearts in Denver. It's a sports town. There are a lot of good teams here, but, um, you know, we're trying to make our mark in the city, and um, we want the, the support, we want the excitement, and um, we look forward to giving them a good product every time we go out. And longtime Nuggets fan Quinn Marchman thinks a playoff run would bring out even more supporters. I think by the end of the season, everybody is going to act like they've been a fan since day one. And they're more than welcome to hop on the bandwagon. A bandwagon that will grow if the Nuggets keep winning. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. It's almost Thanksgiving. Are you nervous about getting a good dinner on the table? Maybe worrying about how to keep your turkey from getting dry? What to do so people actually eat the cranberries you work so hard on? We bet you've got those and other questions, and we found just the right person to answer them. She is Chef Carrie Baird of Bardot in Denver, and she competed last season on TV's Top Chef. The judges raved about her upside-down cake. I've rarely had a dessert on this show with such nuance and sort of ingenious. Usually we get lousy desserts, and so this was beyond good. Wow, thank you. The thing is, Baird had baked that cake in a hole she dug at a snowy campsite in Colorado's mountains. We figure if she can handle that, she can probably help you put a tasty dinner on the table Thursday. So email your Thanksgiving dinner questions. Holiday at CPR.org is the address, and you may get them answered from the chef herself. Again, the email is holiday at CPR.org. Finally today, we have a winner. As you may know, we're taping our third annual holiday extravaganza later this month in a big theater in Denver. And this year, we held a contest for a chance to perform on stage. We heard from lots of Colorado musicians. And all this week, you've heard the runners-up. Now we announce the winner. Face Vocal Band is an all-vocal rock ensemble from Boulder. 
and I called up one of its members to deliver the good news. This is Cody. Hi, Cody. This is Ryan Warner at Colorado Public Radio. Hi, Ryan Warner. <laughs> That's so cool. Wow. <laughs> what a cool what a cool way to wake up. How are you? I'm good. I just thought I would let you know that Face Vocal Band won the contest and we'd love to have you perform at the holiday extravaganza. Oh wow, it's so cool. So cool, man. One of our contest judges was CPR Classicals Jeff Zumfeldy. He had a few reasons for choosing this group. One is just the amount of fun that they are having. Uh, The other thing is just the immensely high quality of the music that they're making. They're really, really outstanding musicians. Their vocal blend and the way that they are able to just take their voices and turn it into uh, such a great rock tune is really outstanding. So here is our contest winner, Face Vocal Band, and their original mashup, Misty Mountain Wonderland. It's Winter Wonderland sung to the tune of Led Zeppelin's Misty Mountain Hop. You can't see this, but they are in some wild holiday sweaters. Face vocal band of Boulder with Misty Mountain Wonderland. Our holiday extravaganza tapes later this month at the Newman Center in Denver. And then you'll hear it in December on the radio. Thanks for spending time with us. That's Colorado Matters for today. This is CPR News. I'm Ryan Moore. Cold outside, cold outside, cold.